Uh, y'all, let me just say right up front that uh, it's an amazing privilege to be on this side of the congregation. Uh, usually, usually I'm out there. And um, out there, like you, uh, I've been on the receiving end of some amazing messages, both from Richard and uh, from Chris. And uh, these messages for me have come at a really good time. Uh, they've brought healing and uh, challenge. And uh, the Lord has just sort of used the, the team, the pastoral team, and the focus on the gospel uh, to just sort of restore me. And I am most grateful for that. Not just me, but, but our whole family. And one of the things I really appreciate about the, uh, the preaching team uh, here at downtown, and I know that you would agree with this, is that they're not afraid to admit that they're broken. And uh, that helps me because I'm broken. And uh, Chris, it's, it's not that we're happy that you're broken. I mean, don't misunderstand me. And Whitney, you, you got to deal with that the rest of your life. I'm just telling you. Uh, but we're just glad that you admit it. Uh, we're glad that you don't pretend. Um, as some of you know, uh, that doesn't always happen in church. And I'm um, super glad uh, that it happens here. All right. Last week, if you were here, uh, you'll remember that Chris began a series uh, rooted in the book of Ephesians. This is Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus. And uh, Chris has asked me to kind of pick up the next se- section of, uh, of that series. And so that, that's what we're going to do. I always like to tell people on the front end what I'm going to be preaching about. Not so that they can leave early if they don't like the topic, but just so that we're all kind of on the same page. And maybe you even heard this in Chris's prayer. What we're talking about today is this idea of living in a radical Christian community together. Uh, living in authentic relationship. How to do relationship uh, within the body of Christ. And to do it in a way uh, that really brings honor to the Lord. And to do it in a way that really blesses one another. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we dig in, though, uh, just for those who maybe weren't here, for those of us who need a little reminder, let me just reboot uh, what Paul has done in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Because this morning we're looking at Ephesians 4. So you've got to ask the question, what went on before that? And before that, in Ephesians 1 through 3... Paul really focuses on what you and I have received from the Lord. And not what we've earned by trying hard to be good, but what we have been given through the kind mercy of Jesus. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians lay out for us these incredibly rich spiritual truths. Truths that... Uh, God has secured for us in the person and work of Jesus. An amazing list. Adoption. Redemption. Grace. Forgiveness. An inheritance that will never fade or spoil. Uh, An inheritance that's kept in heaven for you. Now here's my hunch. 
When you rolled out of bed this morning and sort of wiped the sleep from your eyes, looked at that groggy face in the mirror, my hunch is that you didn't think about any of that. So I just want to tell you straight up, uh, whether you realize it or not sitting here this morning, you are rich. Even though we've wandered, even though we've rebelled against the Lord, we are told that God has adopted us into his family, not as stepchildren, but as full-fledged sons and daughters. And you can't mess that up. God has not given up on you, and he never will. He has redeemed you through the perfect, um, secure work of Jesus Christ. And we're told that, that in him, nothing will ever snatch us out of his hand. You're safe. You are the recipient of grace. The undeserved, unmerited compassion of God. Your past sins, your sins today, the sins you'll commit tomorrow and into the future are all forgiven. And while our sin grieves God, think about this with me, while our sin grieves God, it never surprises Him. It's not like God looks down at us as we struggle and fall in this world and then think to Himself, oh my, this is way worse than I thought. I need to rethink this whole thing. No. We're told in Scripture that where sin abounds, grace abounds. All the more. Like like the waves of the sea. Grace. Mercy. Forgiveness. They just keep flowing. Washing over you. And waiting, if that's not all enough, waiting for you. Being stockpiled for you in heaven is an inheritance. The riches and treasures of God that will satisfy you on the deepest level. In heaven, in heaven, every need you have will be met. Every longing that you have will be completely satisfied. Imagine. And there's nothing you can do to mess that up. There's no preferred zip codes in heaven for those people who get it right more on this earth than they get it wrong. There are in heaven no under-resourced communities, no run-down mansions reserved for us who struggled more than we soared in this world. Oh no. And again, my hunch is, not many of us thought about any of that stuff when we woke this morning and dragged ourselves in to this room. But, that is who you really are. That's your identity. And that is what God has done for you. And mostly, Paul says, in a prayer he prays in these first three chapters, mostly he prays that we won't forget that stuff. Don't forget who you are. Don't, don't forget about what God has done for you. I call this a, a theology of remembering. Because you and I, we, 
and you'll, you'll uh, experience this as you get older and o- older, like my age, uh, remembering is a hard thing. And it's hard for every one of us in this way. We, we forget what we're supposed to remember, and we remember what we're supposed to forget. We forget all these rich treasures, all these promises that God has uh, revealed to us and secured for us. And what we remember are all the sins and all the struggles and all the ways we don't feel like we measure up to God. We've got serious memory problems, you and I. And so Paul is being so insistent, so intentional here. Why? Because we forget all the time. And often, too often, our lives reflect that. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but um, I I sit there at my computer working, and I seem to get, like, inundated with these these emails, these offers from uh, a thing called Groupon. Raise your hand if you know what Groupon is. All right. Groupon are like coupons on steroids. That's Groupon. And I think the way it works is if you ever download and use one, they just feel like permission to just bury you with new offers. Eat here. Buy this. Go there. And maybe you know this if you're a a Groupon person, that uh, they highlight a lot of vacations, and the the real perk, the real... uh, Nice vacation are the ones they call the all-inclusive vacations. And you know how this works. You pay one price. And included in that one price, airfare, hotel, and food. Now stay with me on this. Think about this with me. How crazy would it be if you invested in an all-inclusive vacation, and then at the last minute, you just sort of spaced out, you just sort of forgot about this food perk. And so you you go on this vacation to this luxury place, but the whole time you're there, you, you walk around these nice restaurants, and you're eating all the leftover food from somebody else's plate, just eating a bunch of crumbs and scraps. You do that the whole week. And then on the last day, you're doing that same old thing. And a, and a waiter sees you and, and he says, uh, excuse me, can, can I help you? Oh, don't, don't, don't bother me. You see, I spent all my money on this trip. And I don't have any money left to, to pay for all these good meals at all these good restaurants. Just don't mind me. I'm just going to go ahead and graze a little bit and go ahead and take food off everybody else's plate. And you see his face. It just, it just drops. Oh, oh, oh. I, I am so sorry. Did it, didn't you know? Did, did you forget? All of the meals were included in the price. All of these restaurants, all these buffets, all this stuff, it was yours all the time. You could have eaten 24-7 if you wanted to. And then it hits you. I can't believe it. Here there was a feast provided 
for me. And I, this whole week, I ate like a beggar. I ate like a pauper. I lived like an orphan. And we'd say, how tragic. Tragic indeed. Because friend, that's your life. That's my life. We live, we live way beneath our ultimate blessing, our ultimate standing before God. We live as if our lives depend solely on us in our performance and we wake every day hoping that we'll just get it right enough that God will say, all right, you're all right, you're okay. And so Paul begins his letter very intentionally saying, hey, hey, don't forget who you are. Don't forget what God has done for you. Don't live beneath your status as sons and daughters and heirs and members of God's household, don't forget what Chris told us last time. You were at one time the object of God's wrath. But God made you alive. And now you're his workmanship. You've been created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which God has prepared in advance for you to do. Don't know if you thought about that when you rolled out of bed this morning, but that's the truth. That's where he starts. And now, now, after reminding me, uh, reminding me, reminding us of all of these great spiritual truths, laying this foundation, here's what he does for us this morning. What does that really mean for you and me, practically, as we live out our lives in community? What are the implications of this work that Jesus has done and accomplished and given to us? What are the implications of that on how we do life together? That's what we're going to look at. And before we uh, read uh, from Ephesians 4, let's just pray. Because we we need the Lord's help to receive and um, to have the humility, uh, the courage to accept these words and to live them out in our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you, first of all, for uh, giving us your truth. We don't don't have to wander through this world trying to figure out what it's like to to please you. Uh, You've given that to us in your word. And we've confessed this morning, and we will confess again, that for the most part this week, we've lived as, as practical atheists. We believe in you, but we've lived as if you don't even exist. And we need your help. Would you, would you open our ears that, that we would hear? Would you open our eyes that, that we would see? Get us ready to receive and act on your word. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you got your Bibles, if you don't, it's, it's behind me. This is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and it has everything to do with life together. Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is a little phrase, and you know it. I'm going to start it, and then I'm going to ask you to finish it. It goes like this. You can't just... Talk the talk. Yeah. You can't just talk the talk. You gotta. You can't just talk the talk. You gotta walk the walk. How you live, how I live, matters. Not just having good theology, though that's important. Having your doctrine all right. Not just being able to articulate what it is you believe, but actually living that out in your life. And sometimes we make this way more complicated than it needs to be. Following Jesus, being an apprentice, an ast- a student of Jesus, is simply living as Jesus would live if he was in your place. It's not an individual deal. It's a community value. So much so that that value has actually made it into our mission statement as a church. Uh, You may have it right there in your worship handout. There's a mission statement and then there are five core values. You might be tempted to begin to look at those and read all those five core values. Please don't do that because you might get distracted and I'll never get you back. But I would like for us, I would like for us to read this mission statement together because it has everything to do with this passage before us. Are you ready? Here we go. Downtown church. Let me start. Are you ready? Here we go. Downtown church exists to glorify God by creating a radical new community and by molding loving disciples of Jesus through the power of the gospel. We exist. We are here to bring glory to God. One of the primary ways we bring glory to God is to be part of building this radical new community. A community where love and acceptance and grace uh, just flows. So in the words of that great theologian, Dr. Phil, that was your watch, I'm sorry about that. In the words of the great theologian, Dr. Phil, hey, how's that working for you? Maybe not so well. It's a temptation to think, there's a temptation to think when we read a passage like this, when we uh, read through a mission statement like this, Here's the temptation. You know, that sounds really good. That sounds really good. Uh, I, I want to be in a community like that. I want to be in a community where people uh, love me, 
and support me and accept me and encourage me, that sounds great. And so, I'm just going to come and I'm going to sort of fold my arms and I'm just going to watch. I'm going to see how intentional these people really are about building this kind of community. And I want to say this as gently and lovingly as I can. That is exactly wrong. This is not about what you receive. It's just not. This is about what you give. How you live out these truths. How you live out these values in your own life. A lot of times in the past, I'm preaching on marriage and a husband and wife are sitting together and I'm up here doing my thing and the husband's out there thinking, boy, I hope she's listening because, man, she needs this stuff. Maybe gives her an elbow from time to time and meanwhile the wife is saying, I hope he's listening to this sorry man of mine. I hope he's listening because he needs to get this stuff. So let's just level the playing field. The only one who needs to apply this message is the person sitting in your seat right now. The first thing that this passage teaches us about building a radical new community is that we are called to to, to live out the calling that you have received. Live out the calling that you have received. And I'll tell you why this is so important. Because in just a moment, we're going to walk through briefly what Paul gives us, these, these four virtues of what it means to live in and to bless the spiritual community that he's put us in. And if we see these as as we walk through those, if you see those as four more things that you've got to do, you're dead. Like I gotta lose ten pounds and I gotta balance my checkbook and I gotta rein in this bad habit and now thank you, Rocky, I've got four more things to do. Now Paul says literally, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. And so here's the good news. You have already received the power and the ability to live out these virtues. Or to say it another way, God never calls us to do something, listen, he never calls us to do something that he hasn't first given us the power to do. We're not talking about sin management. We're not talking about a new self-improvement program. We're talking about transformation that comes from the inside out. And the reason that matters is because we try, we try so hard to manage our inner world and our behavior, kind of push it down, manage our outward appearance. But we can't really keep it hidden. Sometimes that stuff just comes out. And it doesn't look so good. Story of a family. uh, They wanted to have some people over from church. The dad in this family was a very angry man. But he didn't want these church people to know that he was a real angry man. He wanted them 
to think that he was a real spiritual man. So had everybody over for dinner, and he thought he would impress his guests. And so he said to his five-year-old son uh, at the dinner table, Son, would you go ahead and pray? And the little five-year-old said, Daddy, I don't know what to say. And the dad says, no problem. Just say what you've heard me say. You see it coming. And so the little kid prays, Oh Lord, why do we have to have all these stupid church people over for dinner today? (laughs) Kind of just leaks out. My goal is not just to change my outward reflections. My goal is that my inner life, my mind, my heart, my inner world is transformed. Jesus put it this way. Look at this, John 15. You know this passage. He said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, this is the difference between living life out of obligation and living life out of overflow. You cannot bear good fruit through human effort. You just can't. Building a radical new community begins with inward transformation of my mind, my attitudes, my heart, my intentions, and my desires. What does that look like? I love this quote. It's probably one of my all-time favorite quotes. If you've been around me long enough, you've probably heard me quote this. It's from a guy named Dallas Willard, kind of a modern-day C.S. Lewis. And this is what he says. A kingdom mind, and we could say, uh, uh, my my inner life. A kingdom mind is one in which the glorious Father of Jesus is always present. And gradually crowds out every distorted belief, every destructive feeling, every misguided intention. Let that encourage you. This is not about managing your sin and your appearance. This is about inviting the work of the Holy Spirit which resides in you and lives in you to stir and help you become a different person from the inside out. That's what Paul talks about earlier in in the book of Galatians. This is the fruit of the Spirit. An inward transformation that leads to an outward manifestation in how you live and how you relate to others. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. To live a life of abiding, resting, remaining in, to be the person God has called you to be through the power he's given you to do it. So what does that look like? 
Paul goes on to give us some stepping stones. Four virtues. And it's, and it's no mistake that he begins with the virtue of humility. He says, you've got you to leverage your spiritual resources, and as you do that, you begin to manifest these virtues. Here's the first one. Humility. Humility is sometimes called the mother of all virtues. And it's essential to unity. Because pride, self-sufficiency, a life of self-absorption is the ultimate enemy of community and of unity. Just think about this with me for a moment. The people, the people that that we that we tend to like are the people that uh, we think show us the kind of respect and attention and honor that we think we deserve. People we don't like are the peop- are the ones that we sense don't like us or reject us. And I I, I get this. Uh, this is kind of humbling to admit to you. A couple weeks ago, I was with a group of my buddy friends. And there in that group was a person who I'll just call a hard-to-deal-with person. I actually have a term for these kind of people. EGR, extra grace required person. You can use that. This is an EGR. And he's just irritated. But he was there. And as we sat there, this group of buddies... This person, this EGR, turned to me and and began uh, to compliment me in a way that was just over the top. I mean, the glowing compliments of me in a particular area of my life. And I listened to him. And I began to think to myself, you know, he's not that bad of a guy after all. I can't. I kind of like this. In fact, he's my new favorite person, this guy. You see, what I find is that my perception of another person, get this, tends to be shaped not so much by who they are, but what I think they think of me. And if I think they love me, I'm willing to tolerate all sorts of stuff that they do. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that kind of man. Rather than maneuvering for respect, which is really the nature of pride, we give respect. We celebrate the intrinsic, God-given worth, value, uniqueness of other people made in his image, whether they give it back or not. Paul says in the book of Philippians, consider others more significant than yourself. Whether they earn it or not. Because if I'm only if I'm determined only to love people who love me well, I'm gonna live in a lonely small little world. Humility. We'll keep moving through this. Next is gentleness. Gentleness is kind of a tricky word. Think people think gentleness means Weakness, but it's not. It used to be translated meekness. 
And as some of you know, that word gentleness actually comes from uh, a, a farming metaphor or example where um, a farmer would, would, would break the will of an ox or a, a workhorse in order to keep them under control. It's the characteristic of a strong personality who does not let their strength control them or use it to control others. And you may know this. Of all the times that Jesus spoke, there was only one time that Jesus ever described himself. Only once. Matthew 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your, for your soul. When I think of the word gentleness, I think tenderness. I think having a heart that cares deeply for others. And when I think about all the brokenness in the world, when I think when I think about all the brokenness in this room, we desperately need to give this gift to each other. Humility, gentleness, patience. If you're out there wishing that I'd hurry up and finish this sermon, this is a growth area for you. Patience is about making room for other people's humanness. It's about cultivating the ability to be inconvenienced. It's about slowing down and being aware of others. don't know if you thought about this, but you walk through the gospel, some of the most profound encounters that Jesus ever had were as a result of him being interrupted. What's your interruptibility quotient like these days? Yesterday, just yesterday, I stood in a long line at the post office. And I was growing frustrated because I had taken the time to go to this little counter and fill out my paperwork and do it all, uh, have it all finished so that when I went up to the window... Everything would be ready. The people in front of me apparently missed that step. And so they're up there doing all that work in the window, which meant clogging the window and making me wait. And I was getting really frustrated. Because I needed to get home and work on a sermon about patience. And I'm thinking, I'm seriously messed up. I'm seriously messed up. Patience flows from humility. It's not all about me. And then lastly, this phrase, bearing with one another in love. This word that Paul uses means to put up with each other or to tolerate one another. And I kind of like this command because Paul is being very realistic about the people to whom he writes. Just put up with them. Endure them. Tolerate them. One writer said it this way, it's like the command to love, only with training wheels. I like that. And why is this important? 
It's important because, as Henry Nouwen says, it's important because, as Henry says, uh, community is the place where the last person that you want to live with lives. And if that's true, and sometimes that is true, we just need to know that's not some cosmic mistake. God designed community to be a place where we grow in our capacity to love because we have to use that capacity, stretch that capacity. For people who are sometimes hard to love, and let's be honest, sometimes that person is us, don't try to change them, don't judge them. Learn to bear with them. Realize that this hard-to-love person is just as much a part of the community as you. Just as loved by God as you. Part of what that means on a practical level, don't push them aside. Don't treat them as, they don't, as if they don't belong. As, as if they don't exist. Don't ignore them. Taking it a step further, don't gossip about them. Don't assume the worst about them. This is the mark of a radical new community. Everybody gets accepted. Everybody gets loved. And the world looks on to a community like that and says, Wow. I've never seen anything like this before. I'll give you a picture of this as we pull this to uh, a close. I read an account of a family therapist named Jim Roberts. He visited his uh, fourth grade son Daniel's class one day. And he looked on as the teacher organized a balloon stomp. If you don't know what a balloon stomp is, it kind of works like this. Uh, The kids all have a balloon tied to their leg. The goal is to stomp everybody else's balloon while making sure at the same time nobody stomps yours. And the last balloon that's still unpopped is the winner. That's the way the game works. And this is what he says. The teacher gave the signal and each child leapt furiously on each other's balloon, doing their best meanwhile to protect themselves from the onslaught of others. All except one or two who lacked the true spirit of competition, and their balloons were laid waste in short order. In a few seconds, all the balloons were burst but one. But then a disturbing thing happened. Another class, this time a class of developmentally challenged children, were brought in and prepared to play the same game. The balloons were tied to their legs, and they were briefed on the rules of the game. Robert says, I got a sinking feeling in my midsection. I wanted to spare those kids the brawl that was about to take place. They only had the foggiest notion of what, was, uh, what this was all about. But after a few moments of confusion, they got the idea, one or two of them, that the balloons were supposed to be stomped, and gradually it caught on. But after the game got underway, it was clear that the kids missed the spirit of it. They went about methodically, intentionally, getting their balloons stomped. One girl carefully held her own balloon in place so that a boy could pop it, and then he did the same for her. And then when all the balloons were gone, the entire class cheered in unison. These children, Robert says, had mistaken this brawl 
for an exercise in togetherness? And the question, who got the game right? Who got the game wrong? The question, what game do you want to play? I'm just going to have to give you my last point because I just looked at Chris's watch. And I just, and it's a big watch. And I did just preach on patience, but I don't want to push it. So here's just the last point. I'm just going to give this to you. Look to the Trinity as your model. I tell you why we end there. I tell you why Paul ends there. Because some of us in this room, we talk about living in an authentic community where we extend the love and mercy and grace and compassion, the dignity that God has given us to others. We've never experienced that. Some of us came from families, they didn't teach us how to do this. Or churches, they didn't teach us how to do this. And you might feel extremely ill-equipped. Good news for you. The Trinity models this perfectly. Father, Son, and Spirit. Perfect unity. No division, no jealousy, no competition, no gossip within the Trinity. How close is the Trinity? Jesus says they're so close, they're actually referred to as one. Three distinct members, each with their role, but one. And Jesus prays, I want you to model that. A Trinitarian view of relationships. And every day, you and I carry an answer to this prayer of Jesus. Father, I pray that they would be one, just as we are one. And when all the balloons are popped, the church joins together and cheers. We did it together. Jesus, Jesus, help us. Father, we thank you so much for your kind mercy in sending us your son Jesus to show us the way. Thank you for giving us your spirit that empowers us to do what we could never, ever do on our own. And that is to love people who are different from us. We ask for your grace and help to do that, even as we offer our gifts to you and our very lives. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.